As many of you know, over the past few years, I've been giving a series of talks here at the Forest Refuge on the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, this particular sutta has an honored and very central place in the Buddha's teachings because he clearly and very unambiguously says in the very opening paragraph of the sutta, this is the direct way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for reaching the noble path, for the realization of Nibbana, namely (coughs) the four foundations of mindfulness. Well, it's a very direct statement about the fruit of this practice. It's the direct path to realization. The Buddha then describes in the sutta, in some detail, how to practice each of the four foundations of mindfulness, namely the body, feelings, the mind. And the fourth foundation, it's hard to translate, it's mindfulness of dhammas, And I think one of the best translations of it in this context is categories of experience. So it's things like the hindrances and the sense bases and the factors of enlightenment. So it's various categories of experience. And in the last of these categories that the Buddha talks about in the sutta, he encapsulates all the previous instructions within the grand framework of the Four Noble Truths. So mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths is the last in the categories of mindfulness of dhammas. This is what the Buddha said in the Majjhima Nikaya, another sutta. He said, just as the footprints of all animals can fit within the footprint of an elephant, so too all wholesome states are embraced by the Four Noble Truths. So there's so many teachings and so many different aspects of the teachings, but they all are held within this framework. And we ended last year with a discussion of the Third Noble Truth, the cessation of dukkha, the cessation of suffering, the relinquishment and letting go of craving. So tonight I'd like to continue from this point and begin the discussion of the final section of the teachings where the Buddha summarizes all the instructions and essential elements of the path, this path to realization, to freedom, and that is mindfulness of the Noble Eightfold Path. So the Buddha says, and what, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering? It is just this noble eightfold path, namely right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I find this quite amazing, just the, the precision and the simplicity and the directness in which the Buddha laid out the path to freedom, to enlightenment, to awakening. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering? And then he just goes on and lays it all out. But when I first began my practice, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, This goes back to the mid-60s. And I just began reading and studying the teachings. The enumeration, this enumeration of the Eightfold Path, it seemed at that point rather abstract and philosophical. You know, write this and write that. And it took me a long time to even remember what all the eight steps were. But then over time, and as my practice continued and I explored the practice and the living of the practice in my life, 
this teaching took on a richness, you know, and a depth, and it began to reveal its own internal logic and consistency. It's not just eight unrelated things. Each step on this eightfold path leads to the next, and leads to the next, and leads to the next. So it's an ongoing, unfolding process. Each step leads to the next, and it culminates in the transformation within us of ignorance into liberating wisdom. That's the fruit of this path. So we begin with the first and critically important step on the path, which is right view. In Pali, it's called samaditi. But right here, there may be a problem. Because sometimes in the West, in our very relativistic culture, when we hear the term right view, some resistance, some resistance might arise, and it has arisen, you know, when we've discussed this aspect. Because we may associate the term right view, we hear that term, and we might associate it with some orthodox dogma that we have to subscribe to. Oh, do you have right view? Are you in accord, you know, in a dogmatic way? None of the Buddhist teachings have to do with blind belief, require that kind of blind belief. We're always invited in the teachings to come and see, to come and investigate for ourselves. Do these teachings accord with our experience of what is true? Do they lead to happiness? Do they lead to a lessening of suffering? So it's important to understand the term, right view, really has to do with teachings that accord with reality, and we're invited to investigate that for ourselves. Right view is the important and essential first step on the path because it sets the direction. If we are on a journey no matter how long or difficult the journey may be, if we're heading in the right direction and we keep on going, we will inevitably reach our destination. It's certain that we'll reach our destination. But if we don't know the right direction, even with very strong aspiration and efforts, we might wander for a long time and never reach our goal. So that's why right view, right understanding, is another translation of samadhiti, is so important right at the beginning. So that all our efforts, all our aspirations, are actually heading in the direction of liberation. We need to have that understanding. Again, from the Buddha's words, he said that just as the dawn is the forerunner and precursor to the rising sun, so is right view the forerunner and precursor of the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths. In several discourses, the Buddha elaborates on right view, and he makes a very interesting distinction between what we might call worldly, or mundane right view. That is the understanding, the right understandings that lead to worldly ease, to worldly happiness. He makes the distinction between that and super mundane right view, which are those understandings that lead to liberation. And tonight and probably next week, I'd like to discuss both of these aspects. So this is how the Buddha described right view. And what bhikkhus is right view? Right view, I say, is twofold. Now what he says next is pretty interesting, I think. 
there is right view that is affected by taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. And there is right view that is noble, taintless, supermundane, a factor of the path. So there's right view that's concerned with, we could say, worldly gain, worldly ease. There's an aspect of right view where the Buddha is pointing out, yes, this is a way to live happily in the world. And then there's super mundane right view, which leads us to liberation. Worldly right view very pragmatically acknowledges that for those of us who are not yet fully liberated, which is probably most of us here, our wholesome actions are still often in the realm of desire, you know, of acquiring merit, of aiming for particular happy results in our lives. Though they are wholesome, they're wholesome states, still these actions are in the realm of acquisition rather than in the realm of the abandonment of desire. I think this aspect of right view, the worldly mundane aspect, is especially relevant for us as lay practitioners, living our lives engaged in the world. Because it points out, it shows us how we can do this in a way that brings happiness and ease rather than stress and difficulties. So it's a very pragmatic approach to how we live our lives. There's a traditional expression in the suttas where the Buddha, in a few very terse statements, describing this mundane right view, he points to a wealth of Dharma understanding. And some aspects of it will seem very obvious. And other aspects are outside the realm, for most of us, of our direct personal experience. But I think it's very worthwhile just listening to and staying open to what might be different ways of understanding the world. So the Buddha explains, and what bhikkhus is right view that is affected by the taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. What's right view in the context of all worldly activities? So he says, and these are the series of very concise statements, He says, there is what is given and what is offered and what is sacrificed. There is fruit and result of good and bad actions. There is this world and the other world. There is mother and father. There are beings who are reborn spontaneously. There are in the world good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins who have realized for themselves by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. This is right view affected by taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. So what does all that mean? I mean it's pretty, they're pretty uh, terse statements. All of the specific declarations in that teaching rest on the framework of understanding the law of karma. Now, the fundamental and essential understanding that all of our volitional actions, of our body, of our speech, of our mind, bear fruit, have result, bring result, depending on the motivation associated with that action. This is something you've heard a lot, I'm sure, Actions of body, of speech, of mind, motivated by greed, by hatred, by ignorance, bring about suffering. The fruit of those actions 
is some kind of suffering. And the actions rooted in non-greed, in generosity, in non-hatred, in loving-kindness, in non-ignorance, wisdom, bring different kinds of happiness. This principle, this understanding is so fundamental and far-reaching, it was emphasized over and over again by the Buddha and by many great enlightened beings up until the present. You know, the first lines of the Dhammapada, the collection of the, a collection of verses of the Buddhist teachings, where the Buddha says, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Centuries later, Padmasambhava, the great Indian adept who brought Buddhism to Tibet, great enlightened being, he said, "Though, though my view is as vast as the sky, my view of emptiness, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So this law of karma is not separate from an understanding of emptiness. It's a law describing how things unfold, how our lives unfold. In the present time, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, he said something very interesting in one discussion. He said if he had to choose in speaking to people between emphasizing emptiness, which is such an essential principle of the Buddhist teaching, and karma, he would emphasize the law of karma. You know, because it's easy to get lost in the philosophical abstraction of emptiness or attachment to some concept. The law of karma is so fundamental to our happiness and well-being. And the Korean Zen master, Sung San, was a wonderful teacher. I love this little epigram. He said, there's no right and no wrong, emphasizing the teaching on emptiness, but right is right and wrong is wrong. So we need to hold both. We, we really need to see that they're one, they're not separate. Of course, it's not enough to simply have this understanding of karma and right view we need to practice applying the understanding in our lives. It's a practice. It's not a philosophical teaching. As we're about to act, little acts, big acts, whatever, as we're about to act throughout the day, or as we're in a thought or an emotion, when they're predominant, do we remember to investigate and reflect on our motivation. Right in this moment, what is the motivation prompting this action? That's the practice which brings this teaching alive. Is the motivation skillful? Is it unskillful? Where is the motivation leading? Do I want to go there? You know, we really need to examine our minds and our motivations in this way. And this is one of the great gifts of a retreat, you know, especially in a place like this, where the whole environment is conducive to this kind of investigation and sensitivity. And what we'll find is that this practice of right view and this understanding and application of the law of karma is precisely what all the other steps of the Eightfold Path help us to do. So in the Buddha's description of mundane right view, held in the context of the law of karma, he elaborated a few very particular areas 
of investigation and practice. So the first statement, you know, that he made, there is what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed. This refers, that statement refers to the moral and karmic significance of generosity. That acts of generosity have power. And the Buddha is highlighting this. You know, he emphasized it in very well-known teaching that if we knew as he did the fruit of giving, we would not let a single meal pass without sharing it. You know, so great is the power of an act of giving. So a question for us then is how in our very fast-paced culture and very individualistic culture, how can we actually make generosity a practice? How can we recognize this aspect of right view and practice it? One way of practicing generosity that I found very helpful and inspiring in my life is the practice of acting on the moments of generous impulse. That is, if I have a thought to give, whether it's just a small gesture or something really big in my life, I try to act on it you know, at the appropriate time. Rather than let the thoughts simply arise and pass away or get lost in second-guessing myself. Should I? Shouldn't I? You know, is it too much? Maybe it's not the right thing. All the ways we second-guess those generous impulses. And it's helpful to pay attention in these moments, these acts of generosity, to pay attention What is the whole experience like? It brings obvious benefit to the recipient. Because they're, they're receiving what we're offering. But of course it also brings great benefit to ourselves, both in the moment and also as the wholesome karmic actions bear fruit. One of the immediate blessings of generosity is that it feels good right there in the moment. Every time we give something, we are strengthening the associated factors of metta, loving kindness, and renunciation. I mean, why do we give? Because we're having a friendly feeling towards someone. So in the very act of giving, there's the friendly feeling, there's the feeling of metta which is being cultivated, and there's also the renunciation, we're letting go of whatever it is that we're giving. And so we're strengthening that aspect of the mind. So if we consciously reflect on this whole process as we act on the generous impulses that arise in our mind and actually looking for opportunities, it's not so much here on retreat, but but in in our lives, we are developing and deepening our understanding of this aspect of right view. You know, because we're seeing it in action. It's not so much a strengthening of our theoretical understanding. We're practicing it and seeing the benefit right in the moment. You know, and so the practice of it in this way as a practice of right view, contributes to the growth of wisdom. Now, and often the Buddha began the sequence of his teachings, his graduated teachings, with discourses on generosity because it gladdens the heart, it lightens the heart, making it open and receptive for the further teachings of liberation. So the second phrase, you know, in this description of worldly right view, says there is fruit and result of good and bad actions. Well, we've just discussed that in terms of understanding the law of karma. But again, there's no way to overestimate 
the importance of these teachings of karma, that there is a fruit of our actions, that we are the heirs, we are the owners of our actions. When we put this understanding into practice, it really enables us to engage very creatively with our lives, knowing that our choices, and more precisely our motivations, shape how our lives unfold. We are actually creating our lives, we're fashioning our lives, we're the artists of our own lives. So when we see this, you know, and refine our ability to see the motivation to make wise choices, then we begin to take a much greater sense of responsibility for what we do. Now, knowing that it has consequences, both in the moment and in the future. The Buddha was very helpful in pointing out quite specifically what actions are unwholesome and what are wholesome. So he didn't leave us to necessarily figure this out for ourselves. And at some point, you can either read the text or listen to the talks on the 10 unwholesome actions and their opposite, which are the 10 wholesome actions. Uh, And all of these are also included within the Eightfold Path, which we'll be discussing over the next weeks. So the next aspect of mundane right view says, there is this world and the other world. Now this is a statement about rebirth and about other planes of existence. And for most of us, this is probably outside the realm of our own immediate experience. And it's also outside the realm of mainstream Western thought. So it may be, at least for some of you, it may be difficult to sign on to these teachings, you know, of rebirth and past lives and future lives and all the different realms of existence. For myself, there was a very gradual opening to even considering the possibility of this. So I came to Dharma practice, I studied philosophy at college, Western philosophy. And I had no belief at all. When I came, went to India after the Peace Corps, had no belief at all in past or future lives, in different planes of existence. But over time, several things happened which began to open my mind to the possibility of it. First, the more I practiced and studied, so much of what the Buddha taught did resonate with what I was actually experiencing. So I began to think, well, if he was right about so much, maybe he's right about the other things he's saying. You know, and so just based on what I could verify by myself, I just began to consider, well, let me keep an open mind to the things that I can't, that I can't verify. I began to practice what the poet Coleridge called the willing suspension of disbelief. You know, I, I saw that just as we can become attached to our belief systems, we can become attached to our disbeliefs. And so I began to see that and just loosened that up a little bit. Just let me stay open. The second thing that happened was that I met teachers like Deepama, that amazing woman uh, who had such deep practice and was able to see in her own meditative experience the truth of these teachings, you know, of past and future lives in other realms. And of course, this is not a proof of rebirth. But in my great trust of her, it again just opened my mind to the possibility of it. In the same vein, in our first teacher training program 
here at IMS, we had a young Sri Lankan man who I had first met in Sri Lanka when he was a young boy. It's quite remarkable, his story. At about the age of two, and this is, this is kind of a, an interesting commentary on Sri Lankan Buddhist culture, uh, he was living with foster parents, and his foster parents were very devout Buddhists. And at two or three in the morning, at two years old, he would be meditating you know, with his foster father, you know, for maybe for 20 minutes or so. And then at the end of the sitting, without being able to read or write, you know, he was two, he began to spontaneously chant complex Pali suttas, complex Pali discourses, and in a melody that was, it was an ancient way of chanting that was not even used anymore in Sri Lanka. And then as he got older and began meditating more, he had active memories of his former life, and one in particular as a monk uh, with uh, the great Buddhist commentator Buddha Gosa, who lived in the fifth century, you know, and who compiled the path of purification. And evidently, there were a whole group of monks who had memorized either all of the suttas or some section of them. And in that life, he said his name was Mudita Gosa. So he was one of those monks. And as he began remembering this past life, he said that's how he was chanting. He was chanting based on the memory of that lifetime. And so these, these chants were just coming out. So I thought to play his foster father started taping you know, his chanting was starting at, uh, when he was three years old and so there are some recordings of this very young boy chanting these suttas so I thought to play just you know, a few minutes of it because it's really quite remarkable Thank you. 
if you had a two or three year old who couldn't who couldn't read, you know, couldn't write, and all of a sudden started spontaneously chanting this, and then they had the monks come, you know, it was like a perfect a perfect rendering of the suttas. It certainly makes one wonder, you know, well, what's, (laughs) how did this happen? You know, and what could possibly explain it? Uh, Again, it might not constitute scientific proof, but it definitely makes one wonder, you know, and consider the possibility, well, maybe there is something, you know, about this whole notion of rebirth. so I just, <laughs> I find it so inspiring just to to listen to that. And, and now when he was here and, uh, for the teacher training and uh, helping us in some retreats, he still chants beautifully. I mean, it's, it's one of his great gifts. So this was another aspect of what kind of allowed me to open my mind to this possibility. And the last thing that really helped came out of my own meditation experience as it deepened and I began to have some experience of the nature of awareness itself. You know, where we're experiencing for ourselves the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness. And we are actually experiencing its non-material nature. It's non-physical nature. And so when we intuit that in some way, it just opens up many possibilities for awareness in a non-material realm. Um, So each of us has our own relationship to these teachings on rebirth and other realms of existence. And... It's important to emphasize that awakening doesn't depend on belief in it. So it's not that we're required to believe in order order to awaken or become enlightened. But as this great transmission of Buddha Dharma happens from the East to the West, as it unfolds, I think it's very helpful not to immediately dismiss what is beyond our limited personal experience. And simply to keep an open mind about this and other possibilities. So, regarding mundane right view, we've discussed the aspects of karma, of generosity, of rebirth and other planes of existence. The next phrase, you know, in that text said, there is mother and father. Now, this does not refer to the obvious fact that we're all born of parents, but rather that there is a special karmic relationship to them with attendant responsibilities. So the Buddha's highlighting the specialness of the relationship we have with our parents. Now, here in the West, and perhaps in Asia as well, there are sometimes complications and difficulties in the relationship we do have with our parents. You know, the Dalai Lama's often repeated teachings that we should treat everyone as our mother, everyone has been our mother in some past life, may have different meaning for him than for the rest of us in terms of what feelings it's meant to arouse. But regardless of our present relationship. The Buddhists pointing out that there is a kind of karmic debt for this great gift of our precious human birth. So there's something we need to acknowledge. And the best possible way of repaying this is to somehow, when possible, to connect our parents with the Dharma, or at least try to plant a few seeds you know, of these understandings. Now, great skill and sensitivity is needed in doing this. And each of us will go about it 
you know, in various ways, depending on the particular relationships we have. And almost certainly for all of us, proselytizing is not the way. That generally doesn't work. The greatest communication, almost always, is how we are rather than what we say. So if there's already an open, loving communication that we have, then there might be real possibilities for Dharma discussion, you know, and maybe even an encouragement to practice. But if communications are difficult, you know, or there's some stress, the first steps might be simply cultivating in ourselves less judgment and more acceptance of just how they are. So we might have work to do in ourselves in how we're relating. Over the many years of teaching now, I know of so many instances where there were tremendous conflict between people, practitioners, and their parents. Sometimes the relationships were abusive or traumatic. But over time and years of practice, in many cases, the relationship actually transformed into one of genuine metta and openness you know, and connection. So there's always that possibility if we're doing our part, no matter how difficult it's been. Now these difficulties are not limited to the modern age. Even Sariputta, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha, second only to the Buddha in his wisdom, you know, it's just an amazing remarkable being had mother problems. He was born into a Brahmin family. He had three brothers and three sisters, all of whom eventually ordained and became Arhans. But his mother was a very staunch Brahmin, you know, who remained hostile to the Buddha and his teachings uh, for Sariputta's almost his whole life. So once Sariputta had gone back to his home village after, you know, he had been a monk for, for some time and again, fully enlightened, chief disciple of the Buddha. So this is the story of what happened when he went home. Once when the venerable Sariputta was in his home village of Nalaka, with a large retinue of monks, he came to his mother's house in the course of his alms round. His mother gave him a seat and served him with food. But while she did so, she uttered abusive words. Oh, you eater of others' leavings, she said. When you fail to get leavings of sour rice gruel, you go from house to house among strangers, licking the leavings off the backs of ladles. And so it was for this that you gave up 80 crores of wealth and became a monk. You have ruined me. Now go on and eat. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it sounds so familiar. <laughs> Likewise, when she was serving food to the monks, she said, So, you are the men who have made my son your page boy. Go on, eat now. <laughs> and then the story goes on of how Sariputta just remained you know, calm and equanimity and full of loving kindness. But many years later, when Sariputta was contemplating his own passing away, so his mother must have been quite old at this time, still, you know, after all of her children had become arhans, fully in line, she still had no faith, you know, in the Dharma. Through Sariputta's eye of wisdom, you know, he could see that she actually had the necessary conditions, the supportive conditions for the attainment of stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment. You know, underneath all that hostility, the possibility was there for her. And he also saw that only he would be able to bring it about. So this was a week before he died. He knew you know, that he would be dying in a week. So he returned to his home village, his mother's house, as it says in the, the story, you know, he returned to his own birth chamber. And this was the very last night of his life. 
And because he was this, you know, great, the greatest of the disciples of the Buddha, it's said that the gods from all the different realms came down to pay homage, to pay respects, you know, to this great enlightened being before he died. Well, this seemed to impress his mother. <laughs> you know, if all these celestial beings are paying homage to my son, you know, what great virtues must the Buddha have? And so her heart softened a bit, you know, and then Sariputta gave his final discourse, establishing his mother in the fruit of stream entry, you know, bound for full awakening. So what do we do? <laughs> we may not have celestial beings <laughs> appear as we visit our parents. But it does point to the fundamental importance the Buddha placed on this relationship. And it may be an easy one or one that takes a great deal of patience and forbearance. But it's worth reflecting on how we might help establish in our parents, you know, at least some seeds of Dharma understanding. And we never know, you know, we just plant seeds and maybe the results will be apparent to us and maybe they won't be apparent. But we're fulfilling this basic responsibility to this very fundamental uh, karmic bond that we have. And even if they've passed away, it's also possible to share the merit of our wholesome actions with them. So actually, as we're performing a wholesome action, to dedicate the merit of that action to the well-being, the welfare, the awakening you know, of our mother and father. And depending on circumstances, this has the potential to have a very beneficial effect. Although it's not specifically mentioned in the suttas, about right view, there is of course the same level of responsibility and care and love that we have towards our children. So it goes in both directions. And there's one particular story that has always intrigued me. It's about Anattapindaka, who was the chief male lay supporter of the Buddha. He was this enormously wealthy person and very devoted and just gave a huge amount of support and resources to the Buddha and the whole Sangha of monks and nuns. And he had four children, three daughters and a son. And the three daughters were all well established in the Dharma. But the son, he was not at all interested. He simply immersed himself kind of in worldly affairs and pleasures. So the story goes that Anattapindaka began bribing his son with, as it says, a thousand gold pieces to go hear the Buddha speak. <laughs> you go hear the Buddha, here's a thousand bucks. <laughs> so through the power of his mind, the Buddha kept Anattapindaka's son from really, he kept the son from really comprehending what he was saying so that the son would keep on asking questions. You know, well, what do you mean? What does that mean? And in this process of the son asking questions, he also attained you know, to Dharma understanding. He too became a stream winner. So I appreciate just the great pragmatic sensibility <laughs> as we undertake our own Dharma practice you know, and try to be of help to others. Really the question is, what works? It's not clear that bribery is always the best way, <laughs> but sometimes even that might be helpful. And what's important here, both whether it's with our parents or with our children, what's important here is our intention and motivation. Because as I said, sometimes these efforts bring very discernible results, and sometimes not. 
There were people who came to the Buddha who even the Buddha could not help in the moment. Yeah. And so sometimes we do everything we can and we don't see any result from it. But if our intention, if our motivation is pure and loving, you know, and imbued with this understanding of right view, these seeds are get, getting planted. And maybe in some future time, they'll bear fruit. So these are all of the aspects of mundane right view, except one, the very last one, uh, which I will begin the talk with next week and then go into the aspect of super mundane right view, that right view which leads to awakening. I just felt that it was important to explore, you know, and understanding it in some depth, these aspects that I talked about tonight, because they really have relevance for how we live. Um, so it's worth giving some thought, giving some reflection to the understanding of them and to the application of them. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.